How do we connect our personal stories to the big story about the environment? How can we motivate corporations to not just aim for profit, but include reporting on environmental risks and impacts in their balance sheets? Sue Inches is an advocate, author, and teacher. She has worked in public policy in the state of Maine for over 25 years, serving as the deputy director of the state planning office and as a director at the Maine Department of Marine Resources. She is author of Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action, and teaches college and high school workshops on this theme. Her consulting work focuses on strategic planning, program development, and environmental campaigns. Sue Inches, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you, because I know it's a life commitment for you. And we're here also to celebrate your book, Advocating for the Environment, which really sets out your many experiences and also how anyone can be a part of this advocacy. So before we get into that conversation, I believe you're going to share a passage that gives listeners a taste of your book. Yes, I'm glad to do that. And I'm actually going to read right from the beginning of the book, because I think it gives a nice introduction to both the book and also the work that I do. So this is chapter one, which is called What's Your Advocacy Story? Advocacy starts with your story. My story and everyone else's stories add up to the big story that we are telling ourselves about the earth. Over time, our collective stories will guide us to sustainable prosperity and well-being or to total destruction. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start with your personal story about the earth that you live on. What events have touched your heart? Was it a brilliant sunset over the ocean? The birth of an animal or a child? Did you have a favorite place outdoors? Where do you spend your free time? Is there a place in nature where you go to connect with your soul? Have you felt the loss of a favorite place or the loss of something you love to do, like swimming in a lake that's now too polluted for swimming, or the loss of something that sustained you, like fishing for a living? Your personal story about connecting with the earth, whether that story is about love or loss, is the starting place for advocacy. You may think that stories are too touchy-feely, less important than facts, or weaker than your carefully crafted argument about your issue. This chapter will show you the opposite is true. It will show you how a well-crafted story is one of the most powerful tools in the advocate's toolbox. Let's start with my story. There was a 60-acre farm in back of my house where I loved to play as a child. There were woods filled with giant oaks, fields of hay, and a tiny pond with a stream that ran in at one end and out at the other. We named the stream Rushing Water Brook and made t-shirts with the name written on them with magic markers. It was a child's paradise. My best friend Faith and I played there every afternoon after school. One day when I was about 10, Faith and I went out to play and found the once clear stream had turned a menacing shade of opaque, milky orange. You could no longer see the bottom of the foot-deep stream. The pond had a plume of ugly orange where the stream flowed in. Just up the hill from the pond was a construction site. The pond we loved was turned into a swimming pool with a bright turquoise bottom. The stream was bulldozed into an unnatural ditch beside the pool. The frogs we used to scare disappeared. We stopped playing there. This experience left me with an indelible memory and a powerful story about the careless pursuit of human goals. In my parents' lack of response, I could also see that people allowed this to happen without fighting back. What is your story? How might it connect with your views of the earth today? Your authentic story that shares the details of your human experience 
complete with feelings, thoughts, sights, sounds, and dialogue, can touch the heart of a decision maker and be a powerful influence. I teach college courses in environmental advocacy. At the beginning of each course, I ask students to write a love letter to the earth. I ask them to breathe deeply and focus on what they smell. I ask them to touch the trunk of a tree or touch the grass under their feet and then describe what touching a living thing feels like and what thought this brings to mind. I'll ask if they heard any messages from the earth. Your advocacy is rooted in your relationship with the earth. If you are not sure what that is, a good place to start is by going outdoors and asking the earth to tell you. I think that's so moving when I read that because, you know, all writing or all storytelling starts with listening. We know we want to say something, but I think in effective advocacy, and you really put this across, we need to listen to others' perspectives to get them into that dialogue, but we listen first. Absolutely. Listening skills are very much a part of any kind of advocacy work. And I like that it starts by asking them what is their story because it gets to that emotion. I'm so glad that environmental education is becoming more integrated in schools. But so often when we were learning about the natural world, it was like an other place outside. It wasn't like connected. And so people sometimes don't even realize they have an environmental story. That's right. And the other reason I bring up stories so early in the book is because when you're actually doing lobbying, it's the stories that the decision makers remember. So I've had many occasions where legislators have said that to me. They'll say, when I go to vote on an issue, it's the stories I remember. It's not the data. It's not the charts and graphs. Those are important, but it's the stories that they remember, and that's how they vote on these issues. So we're not just making this up. This is actually how advocacy works. Yeah, I think so, because not everyone is adept at math, statistics. Not everyone's going to be full up to date on all the environmental science, but it's the stories and the symbols. Or if you speak about young climate leaders like Greta Thunberg, the idea, the story of a lone young person skipping school and standing out and saying, this isn't fair to put this on us. That's a story that then gets repeated and look at the reverberations of that story. Yeah, that's exactly right. I feel like your book, Advocating for the Environment, that's the beginning of the story, but the completion of it is how then we take it up. In addition to that, you mentioned that you teach advocacy classes on the importance of citizen action. So what are some of the ways people can impact public and environmental policy more effectively? Oh boy, that's almost the whole book right there. But citizens often are overwhelmed and advocacy is kind of a big word that people are intimidated about. And so a lot of what I do is I talk to people about how basic and simple advocacy really is, because what it's about is making relationships with decision makers. And one of the groups that I've worked with quite a bit is garden clubs in America. And their garden clubs are mostly women who have gotten together and they love to talk about gardening. And what I say to them is, you already have joined a group. You already know what it is to have relationships in your group. That's actually the key to advocacy. So basically what you need to do is go talk to decision makers in the same way. You're creating a relationship that is based on trust, based on respect, and then talking about what's important to you. And of course, being gardeners, they care about the natural environment. It's about creating that trust. It's about being your authentic self and telling your story to somebody who's in a position to make decisions about the environment. 
Yeah. And as you so rightfully identify, it's about conversations that are across the left and the right, um, Mm -hmm. Democrats and Republicans, and wherever you are on that spectrum, even like hunters or people who are like big gun advocates, you'd think that that's very much on the right. And yet they have a relationship with nature, maybe deeper than a lot of the urban Democrats that would vote for the environment. That's actually correct. I talk a lot about bridging the left and the right. And one of the ways that people can do that is by talking about their experiences. So instead of getting involved in political speak, it's better to talk about things that people have experienced. So for example, here where I live, you might say to somebody, have you noticed that the ice melts from the lakes earlier than it used to? And why do you think that is? And that way you actually can get underneath all the politics and have the person talk about their experience. People are very active. They love to go out on the ice in the winter. And it's been many times too soft or too thin to go out on because of climate change. So people know that. And you can talk to them about that experience without becoming political about it. Yeah. And in Maine, it's beautiful country there and a lot of like early legislation. You've really kind of pioneered a lot of this. I mean, the whole PFAS conversation, Maine shined a light on it and then it's reverberated. Could you tell us about some of that? Absolutely. So Maine is a small state population-wise. It's actually pretty large geographically, but there aren't many people. There's 1.3 million people here. And the advantage that gives us is that we can then actually make political change quite easily in some cases. And we've done that. So there are many places, many issues where Maine has taken the lead nationally and globally. And one of those recent ones, as you mentioned, is the PFAS situation. So PFAS is a group of toxic chemicals. And for a long time, time, the state had been recommending that farmers spread municipal sludge on their farm fields as a fertilizer. And everybody thought this was a fine thing to do, and many farms did this. But then it was discovered that there are toxic chemicals. These PFAS chemicals are in the sludge, and they've polluted the fields. So there are farms where they can no longer graze cattle. They can no longer grow food because the soil is contaminated and the water as well. So Maine has taken the lead on this issue. We have banned PFAS. It it actually occurs in many household products and gets into the waste stream. So we've banned a lot of products that contain PFAS. We're phasing them out. We're also trying to clean up the damage and also compensating farmers who've been put out of business. So we really have been the first state to pass legislation on this. And now there's probably 14 or 15 other states that have pending legislation to outlaw these chemicals. And also the the EPA is contemplating rules about this chemical. And we've done that on lots of other issues too. One that I worked on for a long time was water access for fishermen. The coast of Maine is very beautiful. And so people love to have summer homes there. And what was happening was that fishermen, as they retired, were selling their fishing piers. And then those are being converted into hotels and restaurants and summer homes. And we're losing access for the fishermen to the water. And of course, you can't fish if you don't have access to the water. So again, we took some steps to create ways to preserve that waterfront access. And we were the first state in the country to do that. And now other states have similar programs, but they have copied our example. So those are just a couple of issues where Maine has taken the lead. And I have worked on some of those issues personally. It's really quite rewarding, actually, to make these kinds of changes and see them take root. 
Yeah, it's taken a long time with the PFAS to get that reversed. It's kind of tragically fast. The, the chemicals can get accepted, <laughs> but once they're out into the environment, then you have to prove that that there's a direct correlation and link and health damage. Of the, so it seems a little bit backwards, but I'm glad that's reversing now. We were fortunate also to speak to Rob Billat, who's been, as you know, doing a lot of pioneering, a lot of that legislation for compensation yeah. for people. You know, you've also said the environmental lobbyists write a lot of our policies, which a lot of people don't realize. I mean, so we know that there's bad lobbyists, there's good ones. I mean, you're an advocate. And also PR firms acting as influence peddlers who are working for hire. So how do, and they do the bidding of their clients as an attempt to influence policy and public opinion. How much of that have you seen and how do we get around that? Yes. So this is something I speak about pretty often is there is a very strong anti-environment lobbying going on. There are probably 20 or 30 think tanks that are anti-environment. And what they do is they create model legislation and they introduce it in all 50 states and in Congress. And this is something that is well-funded by big pharma, by the fossil fuel industry, by the Koch brothers. So there's a lot of anti-environment lobbying going on that is well-funded. That's why we need citizens to speak up, because we need to balance that off to say, wait a minute, there's a different story here. These anti-environment policies are harmful to citizens. And so we have to speak up and say that so that decision makers will know what the effect of these anti-environment policies are. I've seen this here in Maine. There's a group called ALEC. It stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's one of the big anti-environment, and they introduce all kinds of legislation. So, for example, one of the things they're introducing introducing now is they're trying to make it illegal for municipalities to pass bans on pesticides. So there are a number of towns that have said you can't spread certain pesticides on property in that town because it's toxic and it gets into the water and so on. And ALEC is opposing that. They're saying, oh, we should make it illegal for towns to ban these pesticides. That's the kind of thing we're up against. And it's everywhere. It's at the national level, it's at the state level, and it's at the local level, as the pesticides example is. So that's why citizens really need to be awake and speaking up against and saying, we don't want that. We want our towns to be able to regulate what chemicals are put on people's lawns. So we don't want this organization coming in and trying to make state legislation that would prohibit it. Yeah, I don't know how organizations or people operate that way, because presumably so many of them have children, their own health is at risk, and they're exposed to it. It defies logic, in fact. I have the same feeling. I it, Sometimes I think to myself, how do these corporate executives who put forward these policies, how do they sleep at night? Because it is very harmful to people. And actually, some people are dying because of these policies. But on the flip side of it, you know, what you just said is actually true. So the children of executives who are putting these policies in place are concerned about the environment. And I actually have a colleague who is a consultant to a major international corporation. And what he's told me is that his client and this multinational corporation, the managers are saying to him, our children want us to do something about the environment because they're going to hate us if we don't. So it's actually the children's voices are influencing the management. And the corporation has said to my consultant friend, we need you to design some environmental policies for us because our children are demanding it. That to me is such a great example of how just speaking up, even children speaking up can make a difference. Indeed. We don't know how powerful our voices are. So you've said that in our 
culture, power is skewed towards corporations and the elite and the people being left out of the big decisions that impact them. So how do we constructively shift that power structure? Well, there are a number of ways to do that. So one of the interesting ones is that companies that make consumer products, they really care what consumers think. And if you can expose toxics or expose policies that they're supporting, they will change. I'm a member of a small nonprofit called Defend Our Health. It's about taking toxics out of the environment. So most recently, they've been testing plastic bottles that are used for beverages. What they found is that there are toxic chemicals leaching from the bottles into the beverages. So that when you drink a Coke or a Pepsi or a bottled water, you may be getting exposed to toxic chemicals. Well, the interesting thing about that is that none of these companies that make those products want that to be in the news, right? They don't want a headline that says, hmm, toxic chemicals found in our product. So Defend Our Health goes to these beverage companies and said, you know, we've done some testing. We have found toxics in your bottles and you could be an industry leader by using a different kind of bottle that doesn't have these toxics in it. And gee, that's something you might want to think about doing because you don't want your customers to be finding out that there's toxics in your beverage. So there are ways to leverage things like that and make change. And so that is actually out there happening. It's of course a big shift we have to make, a really big cultural shift, but there are groups like this working really hard to make these changes happen. Hi, Sue. I'm very interested in your emphasis on storytelling. How have you used your personal story to advocate from within a government position? I know you worked as a director at the Department of Marine Resources in Maine. Are your specific interests within environmental advocacy influenced by your personal story about the stream that you wrote about in the first chapter of your book? Yes, definitely. And not only that, there's another story where during my college years, I went out west and I planted trees on areas that had been clear cut. And, you know, I won't go through that whole story, but I will say that that experience really influenced my work on toxics in particular. So yes, these stories, what they do is they, well, they provide me the energy and sort of the motivation to go and do this work. So even if the issue isn't specifically about water quality in a stream, those stories are still motivating me. I still want a clean and healthy environment. So I often say that stories are used in advocacy in two ways. One is just to motivate a person and keep them grounded because sometimes advocacy work takes a lot of time and you have to stick with it. So it helps you stick with it. But the other way is when you're actually personally influenced by a policy. And certainly the PFAS issue is an example there where farmers who have been personally affected and had to go out of business because of the PFAS chemicals, they actually have told that story to legislative committees. And that has changed the course of public policy because they're telling their direct story. So stories can be used indirectly as motivation, but also directly on a policy issue. So that's how stories are really used in both of those ways. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to realize that the stories of your relationships with the environment aren't just during your formative childhood years, but also can occur like through college or throughout your whole life. Yeah. And I'll give you another example. We had a legislative bill here to add climate science to the K through 12 public school curriculum. And that bill had, I think, close to a hundred people 
testified on that bill. These were students, teachers, business leaders, community leaders all came forward to testify. And they just talked about why they cared about the environment and why it was important to add this to the curriculum. So that's just a very simple way that people just came forward and said, we care. And this is why we care. And each person had their own version of, well, I care because I live on a lake and I want to see it be clean. Students might say, well, I care because this is my future and I need to understand these issues. So there were like 95 people who all had their own reason why they cared about putting climate into the public school curriculum. So that's a great example of how this storytelling applied to a specific issue. Also, you mentioned that every single person has a personal environmental story and relationship to the environment. But how much do you think that the way they tell that story to advocates or to decision makers influences how much they are listened to? Yeah. So the storytelling, of course, should be coming from the heart. And I call it the power of the heart, basically. It's like it needs to come from your authentic self, how you feel deep down. And so there's no like formula for this. It's really each individual has a heart and what they feel, and that's what needs to come through. And decision makers can tell right away if you're telling your real story or not. And to me, it's this power of the heart that cuts through all of the paid lobbying that Mia brought up earlier, you know. So there are many lobbyists out there who are representing anti-environment interests, and they're usually paid quite well to represent those views. But the decision makers know right away. I mean, it's obvious to them when a person comes forward and says, my son or daughter has asthma and we live in a polluted area. That is just so much more authentic than somebody who comes in and says, well, here's a chart or a graph that shows that the amount of chemical being released is you know, within certain guidelines. Well, somebody who's being made sick from it is a little more powerful than that chart is. So that's really, it's that authenticity that really makes it powerful. I know the first half of your book is about learning to think differently and listening to stories of people from different perspectives. How do you think we can draw equitable attention to the voices and stories that tend to be ignored that are equally as important? Yeah. So that's one of the tough things is not everybody is listening. Right. And so, you know, we can do our best to tell our stories, but there are times when people are just not listening. And in those cases, sometimes a wake-up call is needed. And that's when I start talking about direct action. So direct action is when a group of people decide to do something to bring attention to an issue, right? They're trying to bring the media to an issue to say, this is important. In fact, Greta Thunberg is a great example of someone who pretty much that's what she does. She tries to bring attention to an issue through direct action. And that is really appropriate to do. And it works really well sometimes to build awareness around an issue. So that's a bit different than the advocacy where you're trying to actually have a personal relationship with a decision maker or a group of decision makers and tell them your story face to face. So those are just two different ways of working towards change that work together. Sometimes, you know, you just can't get through. And when you can't get through, that's when direct action is really needed. And it's been great to see. I mean, I think there have been some wonderful movements. The whole Black Lives Matter movement over the past five years has really shined light on how deep racial issues have been in this country. And it's taken people speaking out publicly with their stories to really raise awareness around what the experience is like if you're a person of color. So that's a great example where I don't think that those people and those stories were really understood deeply and heard deeply. And so they needed to go out and be more public about their story. And I think it's been effective, actually. Oh, it really has. And so often environmental justice 
justice, the social justice stories there, they overlap so often. And the inequities of those who suffer is often those marginalized communities and minorities, lower income groups. There is a lot of storytelling. There's also some storytelling that you can't trust, like the greenwashing that makes it really hard Mm -hmm. to know what's really happening. That's really true. Yeah. Yeah, there is certainly some greenwashing going on out there. We know that the fossil fuel companies are spending a couple of hundred million dollars a year to talk about how environmental they are. And while some companies are doing some good things, some fossil fuel companies are not, but they're saying that they are. So we have to be alert to that. Yeah, and huge attendance by fossil fuel lobbyists at, say, the COP conferences. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So as you know, corporations come in to do what they do to maximize their profits. And it's always down the line, it's the taxpayers who pay to clean up the mess after they're gone. What has been some of your experience with that? That is very true. Our culture and the way that we carry out capitalism is that we have allowed businesses to create a mess. And then the taxpayers are the ones that very often pay to clean it up. And to me, that is actually not right. We actually need to change that. Corporations need to be held accountable for the environmental harm that they cause. And that way, it's not going to be left to us. Now, unfortunately, I will say this, that corporations feel, in a sense, they're caught in a system as well. So basically, the way that we carry out capitalism now is that profit is above everything, including people's health. That doesn't seem right, but here we are with these corporations that feel that if they don't maximize profit, they could be sued by their shareholders because their shareholders are basically holding them accountable for profit only. So what do we do about that? Well, there are a number of strategies going on out there. One of them that's worked quite well in Europe and is just starting to emerge in America is to basically require that corporations report on their environmental impact. So right alongside with their financial report would be environmental risk and environmental impact reporting. Well, if we can get that going in a bigger way and a more inclusive way that includes companies at all levels, we would have taken a really big step in the right direction. And I know that in Europe, climate reporting and environmental reporting is much stronger than it is in the US. So I think that's a great step in the right direction. We are seeing the Security and Exchange Commission here in this country is working on rules that would require corporations, at least publicly held corporations, to report on their climate risk. And the reason that rule is being worked on, I find fascinating because it's investors that have demanded that. They're saying, well, if we're going to invest in a corporation, we need to know what our risks are. So therefore, corporations need to report on their climate risk. So I'm excited about that as a positive development and hope that the SEC will be able to follow through and create those rules. So we have quite a ways to go in corporate accountability. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we're facing. It's not you know, just that people are consuming too much, but it's that corporations are manufacturing you know, plastics and fossil fuels and products that are not good for the environment. And we really don't have much accountability for the damage that causes. And I, that, that's a really big area where we need to do more work. Yeah, because that's the calculation of the true costs. It's like a holistic accountancy of what goes into it. And then when those subsidies, which we as a taxpayer have been subsidizing all these years, when that's calculated into, then you see that many of these corporations and businesses just 
aren't financially sustainable with a true accountancy. And so a part of this global picture, this holistic thinking is that as well as looking after the environment and when we live in a healthy environment, it also is reflected in our physical health. I know that you love hiking and the outdoors. And Mm -hmm. so it's, but it's not just looking after the planet. It actually has uh, reverberations within our physical health. So what for you is the link between mental health and nature? Oh, what a great question. Well, I live in Maine, which is a rural state. And for those who haven't been here, it's full of lakes. It's the most forested state in the U.S., actually, and has a beautiful coastline as well. So if you like to be outdoors, Maine is a great place to be. And I spend a huge amount of time outdoors because I love it. It's just so beautiful and it it just restores my spirit. So to me, that's the connection is just being outdoors really brings energy to my life and it brings energy to my work. And I think for a lot of people, this is true, that nature is kind of the place where they can regenerate their energy. And if people haven't experienced that, I encourage them to try it because nature can be very restorative. So absolutely, there's a connection between health, between the outdoors and between environmental issues and creating a healthy, clean environment for the future generations. I I just think that that's totally so important. And speaking of those future generations, as you teach in your classes, you ask your students to write that love letter to the earth. So what are some of the things that they've shared with you? Well, yeah. So it's really interesting to hear what students, what their experience is. But I think many of them are very concerned that the nature that they enjoy will go away. And there is a big threat. And it's not just climate change, but it's also toxic chemicals too. We're loading the earth with toxics right now. And so students, they're quite concerned about it. But also I want them to become aware, you know, like for example, a lot of my students are skiers because we live in the Northeast. Well, to think about that sport and is it being done sustainably. You know, there's a lot of fancy gear and products that they use. There's the snowmaking, which could be sustainable, but it depends on what water they're using, whether they're putting any chemicals in the snow. So, I mean, to think about the activities that they love and think, are these being done in a way that's sustainable? And to make that connection, I think is important. My name is Ava Clancy, and I'm working as an associate podcaster with The Creative Process. I study environmental studies at Bates College in Maine, so this conversation with Sue Inches has impacted me greatly. As Sue has mentioned, Maine is a politically divided state with a united love for the earth, from hunters to hikers, fishers to farmers. In such a divided world, it is important to remember that the one thing we all have in common is the earth that we live on. Maine is a state full of picturesque landscapes, and I wonder how much this impacts people's ability to connect over their love for the environment. One of the main things I learned from talking with Sue is that everyone has a story to tell. Every individual, no matter their race, gender, political beliefs, or socioeconomic status, has a personal relationship to the environment. However, it must be much easier to access that story if you're constantly surrounded by aesthetically beautiful landscapes like in Maine. I grew up in a suburb on the coast of Massachusetts surrounded by woodlands, so I have always felt very in touch with and reliant upon nature. I wonder if children who grow up in an urban environment experience the same appreciation for nature as I do. Is human-earth connection inherent in all of us, or does it depend on how we grow up and how we're used to living? Another of my takeaways from Sue's work is that because we are all so divided, it is more crucial than ever that we draw equitable attention to marginalized voices whose stories are invaluable. Sue quotes Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivette Karnak in Chapter 4 of her book, Advocating for the Environment, writing, Now we must move towards understanding our shared existence on the planet, 
not because it is a nice addition to what we do, but because it is a matter of survival. In order to create the changed world we want to see, we must first unite ourselves, which starts by listening to stories. Sue's book is an encouraging reminder that every individual is capable of being an environmental advocate. Combating climate change is very daunting, and it is easy to feel as though your voice isn't enough to make a change. As a student, it is incredibly empowering to hear that I can use my story, my experiences, to influence a decision maker just as Sue Inches has used her voice to create change. Now, back to the interview. So you've spoken about different levels of communication, effective communication in your peer groups, you're gathering people as an advocate. And your book is very helpful because you give sample press releases, you discuss public testimony and letters to the editor, all these different levels of communication and tones. Can you go into that? What might attract the attention of policymakers? Yeah. So one thing I would say about that is that certainly individuals can do a lot by writing a letter to the editor, by submitting testimony on a bill and things like that. Individuals actually have more power than they think they do. One of the questions I often ask audiences is how many calls or emails do you think it takes to move a legislator or decision maker on an issue? And in a small state like Maine, the answer is five. It only takes five emails or calls to raise attention and move somebody on an issue. In a larger state, it might be 10, but that's still not very many, right? 10 people. So People are actually much more powerful than they think they are. Many people just don't speak up. They think about it, but then they think, oh, I don't know enough about this issue. Well, it's not really about what you know. It's about what you feel, right? So if you have an emotional connection to a certain area, like you love to go camping or you have a vacation home, if you have a connection to an area, then absolutely you should speak up. So having said all that, the power of the individual being as strong as it is, I also like to encourage people to create or join groups. I mean, even if you just have five people who all feel the same way you do, get together, have a conversation, say, let's do a testimony together and go to this hearing. In fact, it it gives you confidence. If you have five people who you sort of sat down with on an afternoon and said, let's do something about this issue. We have terrible toxic pollution in our town. Let's go and talk to the town council about that. So just getting together with other people really, really builds power and energy. So I always encourage people, individuals are strong, but community groups and small groups are stronger. So to create or join a group can be really important. And in fact, I'll tell you a story. So down in Mississippi, there's an area called Cancer Alley. It's about 80 miles between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. There are 140 petrochemical plants there. The air pollution there is the worst in the country, as is the rate of cancer and COVID deaths were very very high, like high nationally in that area. And so there is a woman down there. Her name is Sharon Levine. And she is a special ed teacher. She's in her late 50s. She became concerned because members of her extended family had cancer. Some had died, some were sick. And she realized, you know what? We need to say something about this. There are these chemical plants right in our neighborhood and they're causing illness. But she didn't have any organizing skills. She had no money. It would have been easy for her to just throw up her hands and say, I can't do anything about this. And big corporations have these plants and I'm you know, special ed teacher, I don't know anything about this. Well, what she did is she went to her church and she found a small group of people and said, we need to speak up. 
about this. And so she did that. She and her group of friends, and there was about a dozen of them, I think, made signs and did a little protest about their proposing four new plastics plants in her neighborhood, in addition to the ones that were already there. So the great thing about this story is they didn't have anything really to work with. But as soon as they spoke up, what happened was another group called Earth Justice came in and said, actually, we can help you. Earth Justice specializes in lawsuits. And it turned out the state of Louisiana had issued a permit for these four new plastic plants to be located in Sharon's neighborhood. And so Earth Justice said, we will represent you in court. And so they did. And basically they sued the state of Louisiana for issuing these permits. And lo and behold, they won. They won the lawsuit and overturned the permits. So that case is now under appeal. But I read the judge's opinion very, very strong case that these new plants should not be permitted there because they're going to add so much more pollution to, to what's already there that it's going to be way beyond EPA standards, basically. So the moral of the story is that Sharon went forward and she just created a group of friends. And then that opened the door for other resources and other people who had experience and who had resources to come in and support them. So that's why I say you need to speak up and you need to gather a few people. And then that opens the door to can have even more power. So often we can feel alone or afraid, but there are others out there combined who can amplify our voices and our concerns and might be just waiting for that. Might be out there waiting for you. So it's worth going out and checking on that. So Sue, you mentioned environmental education. And as you think about those, your mentors and your collaborators, teachers who have inspired you on your journey, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're living for the next generation, and of course, the beauty and wonder of the natural world, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? So one of the things that's interesting is that students have more power than they realize because they represent the future and that decision makers actually listen to them. So that's what I would say is to encourage young people. And the other thing too, is that Young people will often have adult allies who can support them. So here in Maine, we have a group called the the Maine Youth Action, and they're high school students who go and lobby on issues that they care about. And it's really interesting because some legislators really listen to them right off the bat, and then there are others who kind of ignore them. And when that happens, the Maine youth have learned to call in their allies, like a person like me. And if I'm in the room and I'm actually working with the students and treating them as their points of view are really important, then the decision makers will come around and they will start treating them that way too. So it's like these youth have learned how to stand up on their own. And some of them are really articulate. And then they also know that there are times when, gee, I need to bring in my adult allies to help me out on this. That's the other thing is to make friends with some adults who can be helpful mentors and allies. And it's actually, for me as an adult ally, it's fun to help out the youth. And they are just great as they are learning how to speak up for themselves. It's very empowering when they do that. For youth who feel overwhelmed and, you know, this is awful, what we're doing to the environment, which it is awful. But as soon as they can take some action, whether that's locally or at the state level or whatever it is, they start feeling better. Even if they do something simple, like cleaning up a street, let's say, having something positive to feel good about. Well, we cleaned up that street. Hey, maybe next year we could clean up the whole town. It really builds on itself. That's what I would say is pick something that seems doable at first and then build from there. And so that's often a really good way for youth to get involved. 
And, you know, we didn't discuss your full journey because so often as advocates, environmentalists, that path is not quite clear. So how did you chart your path just so we know your journey and that it is possible? Well, I have to say, I didn't know what I really thought I wanted to do when I grow up for a long time. I tried lots of different things. I got a business degree because I thought to myself, well, if I know about business, maybe I can create good things that way, right? So I think people need to follow their passion, whatever that is, and it will lead to the right place. So I always loved doing things outdoors, of course, but it wasn't until I was pretty far along in my career that I actually moved into environmental work. So my career started in marketing and advertising. I worked for a supermarket chain and we your marketing grocery stores. It wasn't until later that I realized that the skills that I had from marketing, how to communicate a message, you only have people's attention for like 30 seconds. How do you communicate your message effectively? Some of the skills I learned in marketing, it turns out, were directly transferable to public policy. So I would never have known that. And nobody in my family was engaged in public policy. So I didn't have any clue what that was. So it wasn't until I was pretty far along in my career that I realized, huh, you know what? I could actually do public policy with my marketing skills. And partly how I got to that realization was I had a job to market Maine seafood. And so I was doing that. And then I met all the fishermen as I did that marketing job. And what I saw was the fishermen are a very strong lobbying group. They actually believe that if they have a problem, they should call the governor and ask for a meeting, which they do. They think that if they have an issue, they should go ask their legislator to put in a bill for them. And they do. So I saw here are these fishermen who are pretty like much authentic, ordinary local people who feel really empowered politically. And I kind of saw that and thought, well, they can do that. I could do that, basically. So I went from marketing Maine seafood to working on policy issues. So that's kind of how that evolved. But basically, public policy is communication skills. It's about creating a message. It's about writing, organizing your argument and creating an argument about why we should go a certain way. Those are the skills that were involved in that. So that's a little bit about how I got to where I am. It's so true. I I think that we're all autodidactic as well. You know, there's a degree will only get you so far. The rest is determination, drive and desire. And you demonstrated that. So thank you, Sue Inches, for advocating for the environment and showing us that ordinary citizens have the power to change the world and for your commitment for bringing about political and environmental transformation so that we can protect our planet for future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yamashelsky Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Ava Clancy with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Ava Clancy. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers, and theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.